Now, we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians, and this morning we find ourselves towards the end of the first major section, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. So, Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. I'm going to read verses 20 and 21. That's all we're going to look at this morning, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. And just let me read them uh, to try and get our bearings a little bit, and uh, then we'll try and set this up a little. While you're turning there, I can hear pages flipping, which is cool. Um, it's harder to hear you scrolling on the iPhone. Um, wish they would add a sound to it, so while you're scrolling, it sounds like page flipping. Um, so Ephesians is broken into two really major sections. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, the first half of the book, tell us who we are in Christ. And Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, the second half of the book, which we will begin next week, tells us what does it mean to live knowing who we are in Christ. And we're ending that first major section today, and uh, it's an important part of it. Now, but if you're like most people, you really like reading Ephesians 1 through 3. It tells you about all the great things Jesus has done for us. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, well, then it starts getting real. Uh, so enjoy it while it lasts, the last two days, the last day today. All right, you found Ephesians 3.20. Here's what it says. Now to him, talking of Jesus, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now for Paul, it all starts with good news. It all starts with really good news for the Apostle Paul, and he started this at the beginning of the book of Ephesians, actually Ephesians 1, of verse 3, by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So Paul starts with good news, and he says, good news, God through Christ has given us everything God could possibly have to offer uh, in Christ Jesus. He has blessed us with every blessing uh, we could ever imagine. How does Jesus give us every blessing we could ever imagine? The good news is very, very simple. God gave us his entire creation and said, here's my creation, you're in charge. And very quickly, we decided to rebel against him and disobey him. We rejected him. We said, your creation is nice. In fact, we like your creation better than we like you. So we'll take the world. You can stick to yourself. And we rejected God and decided to run things our own ways. And we call that disobedience, rebellion, or the fancy Bible word, sin. And so what God did, of course, was come up with a plan to bring us and restore us back to himself. So what God does is he says, the only way for me to fix the brokenness between you and I is to have someone come and pay the ransom price for your disobedience. So Jesus comes, God in the flesh as a man, dies on the cross sheds his blood, three days later he rises from the dead. I just said that, and I know we're in church, so we say that all the time. We say, rise from the dead, right? And somebody said this, you know, there's a lot of religions out there, and they're really kooky. Got a lot of really weird stuff going on them. And I like what one author said. He said, listen, we believe a guy raised from the dead. And you said, well, that's not kooky. Well, I know it's... It's a little. And it, it's either happened or it hasn't. If it hasn't happened, we're sunk. We should be at home sleeping in. 
I have kids. I wouldn't be sleeping in. We should be at home doing what you do when you have kids. No, we believe a guy raised from the dead. Like a guy who was fully dead, not mostly dead. A guy fully done. Three days later, he, he comes walking out. The good news, the Bible says, if, if we believe him, if we trust that what he did was really for us, we look forward to a resurrection as well. This is good news. We inherit not just the creation God gave us, but he says in Christ, by trusting in him, we inherit everything Christ has. This is good news. And what do we have to do to earn this? We have to be really, really good. And we're lousy at that. I was bad at it before I found Christ. And then I found Christ and found out I'm still pretty bad at it. And so since we can't be good, what do we need to count on? That he is perfect for us. So that in Christ, I am made perfect. I I am in Christ. And so therefore, when Christ sees me, he sees who? Christ in all his perfection. This is good news. I should ask you this. This is completely off my outline. And some of you are surprised I use outlines. I don't, I don't know if anybody here today, probably none of, you, none of you guys, but did you, I mean, this week, I mean, really, it's not like you sinned. I mean, you passed sin hours ago. You, like, swung for the fences, home run, hit that sucker out of the park. I mean, kind of stuff. Maybe you should be in jail today and nobody caught you. I don't know. Anybody really go for it this week? And not one of those, like, oh, I stumbled and fell. It's like, no, I planned for a month, had it on my calendar, I saved up for it. Cashed in my 401. I don't know what you did. When Jesus sees you, does he see that? Not in Christ. He sees Christ. And you say, well, that's not fair. That's weird. Lucky you. That's good news, by the way. That's really good news that people like us can walk into God's presence and, and God could say, not that he ever would, why would you be here? Jesus. He's perfect for me, so I'm perfect. And some of you are saying, but I'm not perfect. See, that's, that's, what, that's Satan's job is to tell you that you're not perfect. And Jesus' job, full-time, right hand of God, stand by God's hand, and, uh, and you blow it again. It must be Monday. No, I took care of it. It's paid for. I'm perfect for him again. I said, boy, I don't know. That's a doozy. Jesus said, yeah, I know. Cross, big time, paid for it all. That's good news. For the Apostle Paul, it starts and it ends with good news. Either what Christ did is good news or we're sunk. As one author said, Jesus offers us good news, not good advice. In him we receive redemption by faith. It all starts with good news, and he doesn't merely let us in and let us sit in the corner with the dunce cap. He says, you're in, you're one of my children, and I will bless you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Some of you are thinking too small here. You're looking forward to heaven because you get a big mansion. The Bible says you get it all. It begins with good news. This is where our strength is. This is where our power is in Christ and the fact that he has given us a good news. Paul continues on down in verse 18 of chapter 1 in the book of Ephesians. Here's what he says to us, knowing this good news. He wants the Spirit of God to do a work on our hearts, and he says this, having your eyes, the eyes of your hearts enlightened, which means they can see, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, 
that you may know what it is that God wants you to do to pay him back for what he did for you. I don't know if you're following along with me, but I'm reading that incorrectly on purpose to make sure you're listening. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Paul says, it starts with good news, and if I could have anything for you, I would finally have the eyes of your heart open that you would say, holy cow, that's nuts. That's in the Greek. That's unbelievable. Look what he did. That the, the greatness and the immeasurableness of the power that he did to, to bring us salvation. The gloriousness of, in, of his inheritance. Again, continuing on in this good news, look with me down in chapter 2, beginning in verse 4 of Ephesians still. Paul says this, describing us, we... Once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. I love Paul. He doesn't leave sin in the body. He knows who he's talking to. You guys sin, and then you plan to sin. And then you're thinking about sin. I got this sin scheduled. All right. And then what's next week? He says, you were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, meaning that we should receive the justice of God on our own head because we rebelled against him. Verse 4, what's it say? But God, who is rich in mercy, and because of his great love, he loved us. And when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. So some of us think, I could never be good enough to be one of them Christians. And you should say to yourself, I am so lucky I'm not so good. Because God says, while we were in our trespasses and sins, living full tilt in our rebellion, then he sends Christ. We have to remember what the Bible teaches us. The Bible doesn't love sinners who have a lot of potential. I said the Bible. God doesn't merely love sinners who have a lot of potential. Now, he looks at one of us and says, oh, boy, you really are a terrible, terrible sinner. But I know there's a whole lot of potential in you. If I do my thing and you do your thing, we're going we're gonna to do great. That's not what the Bible says about God. What does the Bible say about God? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the kind of God he is. He loves us as sinners, and he seeks to save us as sinners through the righteous and perfect act of Christ. So look with me again, Ephesians 3.18. Paul is praying for the believers in Ephesus. We might even imagine he would pray for people in a church like ours. He prays this for them. Verse 18, I pray that you may have strength. He prays for their strength. And what we have to remember as we're reading this, I know you're already reading ahead, so you know the answer. It's really interesting to, to me to, to look, excuse me, at what he prays for strength for. Look at it. That they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He says you need to be strengthened because you are too weak to actually understand the love of Christ. You need God's strength to even be able to comprehend how much Jesus loves you. 
This is surprising because when we pray for strength for one another, don't we pray for strength to behave well? Well, I really hope he has the strength to overcome that sin. I really pray that he has the strength to do better at his job or to be a better husband. And what does Paul pray for strength for? You might know the love of Christ. Now, let's not get it wrong. Ephesians 5, he's going to talk about being a better husband and being one who works harder. But he's going to start with what? Good news. God loves sinners. And I want you to have the strength to know that God loves you, a sinner, and that God will continue to love you. And as we put our faith in Christ and receive salvation, his love continues even in our struggle with sin as Christians. That we're never going to be a better husband and a better wife and a better employee or a better child when all we're trying to do is earn God's love. What Paul is saying is it starts with good news. Christ loves you, and when you have his strength to know that, you will be able to see what it looks like to be a better husband, a better employee, a better wife, a better son or daughter. So his prayer is for our strength to know the boundlessness of God's love in Jesus. And this is how he ends it. Don't get excited. It's not how we're ending the sermon. I know what we're thinking there. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. Will, will God hear my prayer? God, give me strength to actually experience your love today. Now to him who is able to do actually more than we could even ask and more than we could even think. He's saying, I want you to stand in strength today in God and know his power and his, and his presence. And I want you to stand in strength today and know the glory of God. I want you to know in his power that he actually can do more than you ask for. And he can actually do more than you could ever think to ask for. What's the biggest thing you've ever asked God for? Don't say it out loud. I don't Too many of us. And you know, you know what his first response is when we ask for stuff? Why so small? Man I, man, I got everything. I got something bigger in mind. He could do more than we could ever ask. He could do more than we could ever know. We see only one solution to a problem and say, God, you've got to do this. You've got to fix this. He sees a million options to solve that problem. And so he can do even more than we might even know or imagine. Sometimes we think God is only good if he hears our prayer the way we pray them. God is good oftentimes because he doesn't give us what we ask for. I know it's hard. It's hard. I'm like you. I like it my way. No, I shouldn't say it. It's not that I like it my way. It's just that it should always be my way. I know you're the same way, and we get along great when your way and my way agree with each other. And it's the same thing with God. He and I get along great when his way and my way agree with each other, and then sometimes we disagree, and it turns out he's God and I'm not. But he knows more than I could ever ask, more than you could ever imagine. So we're going to talk just a little bit today about standing in strength, understanding God's power and his presence, standing in strength, experiencing knowing God's glory as his people, in Christ. But God, what does it look like to have God's power, presence, and glory for us as sinners where God steps in and says, but God, I will seek to save sinners. All right, well, I'm going to look at a story to kind of illustrate this. It's in 1 Samuel 17. You can turn there if you want to, or you can just listen. It's a story you're familiar with, and by story, I mean historical event. It involves a guy named David and another guy who's a little taller than him named Goliath. First Samuel 17, David 
and Goliath. If you don't know the story, Israel had a king. His name was what? Saul. King Saul was the first king of Israel. King Saul was not a great king. David at this point, and you probably have heard of David before, David will one day be king, but at this point he is a shepherd. He is the youngest of all of his brothers. He is useless. He's just useless. He's the littlest. He's the runt. Uh, His brothers pick on him, and he's a shepherd. His job, basically, in the story, before we get to Goliath, is to be an errand boy, to take food to the army for his dad and then go back and watch his sheep. You'll notice later on, if you'll look for it, and we're not going to cover it, but he takes to the commander of his brothers ten different kinds of cheeses. I just want to point that out because I like cheese. So the scene is, Israel is on one side of a great ravine, and on the other side are the Philistine army. When you hear the Philistines in the Bible, the Darth Vader soundtrack should play in your head. And you go, boo, Philistines, okay. And then you have Israel on their side. Technologically, Israel was in the Stone Age, and the Philistines had aircraft carriers. They really were that much more advanced than the the people of Israel. I mean, the Philistines could not be beat by Israel. I mean, it was unbelievable. This is, it's embarrassing that these two would even be facing each other in battle at this point. And so they have their two lines, and what they had decided to do was send out Goliath, this big, gigantic, tall uh, guy. With, oh, he was a warrior, and he, he was outfitted in the best uh, armor, and his shield bearer would go in front of him, uh, so holding his shield, and he would go out, and for 40 days... He would tell Israel, send to me a champion. If I defeat him, you are our slaves. If he defeats me, we will be your slaves. So he does this for 40 days. Israel sends no one. King Saul is there. He doesn't go. Nobody goes. In fact, as we read through it, we find out that what would happen is he would bellow out every morning, send to me your champion, and and he could fight me, and whoever wins, wins. And the people of Israel, the armies of Israel, would flee. Which means every morning they girded their loins and got out and stood there shaking, trying not to empty their bladders. Goliath would bellow out and they would all run and hide. Forty days they did this. It's embarrassing. David shows up bringing his ten cheeses. It's delicious. And he hears what's happening. This is 40 days in. And this is what David is asking about, what's going on, what's this all about? And all the men of Israel, this is 1 Samuel 17, 24, when they saw the man, that is Goliath, they would flee from him. And they told David, have you seen this man who's come up? He's come to defy Israel. And the king will enrich whoever was able to kill him. If you kill this Goliath, the king, that is Saul, would give you his daughter and his father's house would be tax-free. Now, David, being a CPA, no, he wasn't, he was a shepherd. So David stood by, and he, he got this information, and, and he gathered it. And here's David's response when he saw the men uh, fleeing. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? See, right away we understand something about David. He saw Goliath a little bit different. He saw Goliath as one outside of God's household. 
He is an enemy of God and the enemy of God's people. And when he looked at Israel, he did not merely see Israel's soldiers. soldiers. What, how does he describe them? The armies of the living God. That must have been almost, almost comical to say as he turns around, the armies of the living God, and here's this group of men hiding under trees and behind bushes. But David is not concerned about what they look like because their might and their power is not defined by them. It is defined by the living God. Do you see how David is seeing them differently? He sees cowering men, but he sees the armies of the living God. He sees Goliath as the underdog. He looks at the armies of the living God, and he looks at someone who was outside of the power of God, and in some ways he feels pity for Goliath. And he says, who will remove the reproach of Israel? That's what David said. Who will remove their shame? Who will come in and help the armies of the living God cowering behind bushes so they could stand up in strength as the armies of the living God? Who will remove their shame if only there was one? David goes to Saul, this is down in verse 36, and says, I'll take care of it by God's strength. Saul says, you're kind of scrawny. I don't think you can pull it off. And David says, I fought a bear, killed him. Fought a lion, killed him, because God gave me strength. So I have no reason to doubt that God would give me strength to kill this little Goliath guy. Saul does the right thing, and he says, okay, well, that's a good idea. Uh, Goliath has a bronze helmet, and Goliath has a breastplate, and Goliath has a shield. So why don't you wear my armor? And so David puts it on, and finally he takes it. Forget it. I can't wear this stuff. He couldn't wear it. He hadn't tested it. He hadn't fought it. He says, he says I don't need this. So David walks out of the field of battle with a few things. He, he has his staff. He has his sling. And he has some stones. David had a conversation with Goliath. It's towards the end of 1 Samuel 17. Goliath, you come to me with a sword. This is verse 45 of 1 Samuel 17. You come to me with a sword, and you come to me with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword or the spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give it into our hand. And David slung his stone, and he knocked Goliath out. He walks over to Goliath's corpse and cuts his head off with Goliath's own sword. Israel sees that their reproach has been removed, and they come flying out from behind the bushes, and with a great shout, they plunder the armies of the Philistines. They charge into their camp, and they, and they slaughter them, and they plunder them. David prevailed. The Philistines fled, and finally a cowering army understands they're not a cowering army. They are the army of the living God. 
They didn't suddenly find their strength. They suddenly found their God. And they pursued and they plundered. This is the same God that tells us in Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we could ask or we could imagine. See, when we read the story of 1 Samuel 17, and we read the story of David and the small Goliath and the mighty armies of Israel, we often want to imagine how we can finally live and be like David. What we need to finally imagine and understand is in that story we're the cowering army and we have one who has removed our reproach. He stepped in and killed the strong man and now our reproach has been removed. We have not just found our strength, we have found our Savior and now we can go forward in strength in the good news that Christ saves sinners and plunder the army, plunder the enemy. We're able to stand strong because we stand behind one who has removed our reproach. We're able to stand strong because his glory is our glory. I don't need to conquer giants in my life because he conquered them all. But I can stand behind him and experience the glory and victory of Christ, experience his victory over sin and death on the cross. He is able. He is able to stand strong, and we stand strong in him. He is able to have glory, and we have glory in him. And David was good, and uh, let me qualify that. David was okay, but David had a couple of faults. Uh, he didn't do everything right. He really blew it. The Bible recorded three significant times he really, really blew it. Um, but I imagine they just ran out of paper. I know, you're saying they didn't have paper back then. You know what I mean. David was good. He had faults. Christ is better. Goliath is small potatoes compared to what Christ had to face. Goliath was nothing. David facing the shrimp, Goliath, is intended just to give us a small glimpse into the strong man Christ faced. And this is what he tells us over in Matthew chapter 12, verse 25. He had been accused by the religious leaders in Matthew chapter 12 of doing his work by the power of Satan. That's what the religious leaders did. He did these miracles. He healed people and all these other things. And they said, well, we know how he does it. He does it by the power of Satan. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, verse 25 of Matthew 12, said this to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, that's another name for Satan, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then he tells this story. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then he indeed may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever uh, does not gather with me scatters. So Jesus is saying this. The first thing I'm going to do is bind the strong man, the devil. I'm going to go into his house and I'm going to bind the strong man. How does he do that? He takes away his authority by dying on the cross. 
all of Jesus or all of Satan's power is bound up in this one thing is he can accuse us of sin and we will be separated from God forever. So Jesus simply comes in and takes away our reproach. He removes our shame and he removes our guilt on the cross. And so now Satan has no authority over us. Just like David removed the reproach of Israel by conquering Mr. Big Pants Goliath. And so Jesus on the cross has defeated Satan totally. Now the only thing that Satan has to do to us is kill us. He says, good for you. You can be righteous in Christ, but I can still kill you. So three days later, Jesus says, okay, I'll take care of that too. Raises us from the dead. Now death can't even hold us. So now Satan can do nothing to those who are opposed to him. And so what does Jesus say? Death can't get you. Sin can't get you. What should we do? Plunder the dude's house. He's got no power. The job now between when we receive uh, forgiveness and when we receive new life until the day he returns is to plunder the house. This is why I always think it's funny when I hear Christians talk like as though we're the underdogs here. That's because we've missed things. Suddenly we see the armies of the living God, the people of God, cowering in the shrubbery, and we've missed what David saw, and we've missed what Jesus saw. He said, no, 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 you're the armies of the living God. You know, this is one already. You, we stand strong not because we are strong. We stand strong because he already kicked Heine. It's already done. The score is zero to one, and, there, and there's no comeback. Their job now is to plunder his house, to go from being the cowering army and instead pursue and plunder the kingdom of the devil because he's got nothing on us. Make disciples, build his church, and what does Jesus say about his church? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not prevail against the body of Christ. He says, go and make disciples. I promise you, I'm going to build my church, and there can be nothing done to stop it. You are strong in Christ. He will prevail. You say, how can I do that? I don't know enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm fairly intimidated by other people. I, I'm, I'm insecure, whatever it might be. One last thing from the Old Testament, and then we'll summarize and find out what happened to Peter's friend in Taiwan. That wasn't nice. <laughs> okay, Exodus chapter 30, just real quick here. Exodus 30. Exodus, second book of the Bible, 30, comes right after 29. Exodus 30, the Lord said to Moses, they had come out of Egypt and they were walking around in the desert and um, they made the tabernacle and, and they had to worship God in the tabernacle according to a bunch of rules. And the Lord said this to Moses, when you take a census of the people of Israel, each one shall give a, a ransom for his life to the Lord. And when you number them, uh, so that way there's no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, a half shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Uh, the shekel is 20 geras. Okay, thank you for that clarity. Uh, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord, everyone who is numbered in the census. So what would happen? All those who had been redeemed out of Egypt uh, could now worship God, but God is saying, I want you uh, to give an offering uh, to, as a recognition of your redemption out of Egypt, and that offering, the half shekel, goes to the tabernacle, and that money was used uh, to, to, for the running of the tabernacle, the supplies and whatnot that the priests 
uh, would need. They would give the service to the tabernacle. They would have to give a half shekel, and the Bible says whether you were rich or poor. So the wealthy person gave a half shekel, the poor man uh, gave a half shekel. Everybody gave the same amount in this particular offering. And uh, so what happened is later on, Peter and Jesus were walking around uh, near Capernaum, uh, and this is in Matthew chapter 17, and uh, I don't apologize for having you uh, flip all over the, your Bible today. Uh, this is what happened in Capernaum. They came to Capernaum, and the collectors of the true drachma tax came up to Peter and said, doesn't your teacher pay the tax? So they got to pay the tax. Uh, they were still collecting the tax for the temple. And you got to collect the temple because they would need the money to help run the temple. And apparently it was due, and, and Jesus and Peter hadn't paid the temple tax yet. And Peter said, well, yeah, we, yeah, we pay the tax. I mean, we're no slouches here. We handle that and take care of it. I'll, don't worry about it. I got it handled. And so then he goes into the house, and, and Jesus is there. He doesn't even wait for Peter to ask him uh, what's going on. And he walks into the house, and Jesus spoke to him first. What do you think, Simon? When the kings of the earth collect a tax, do they collect them from their own sons or from others? And what he's saying is when Caesar collects his taxes, he, don't, he doesn't collect them from his sons. He collects them from the people. If you're in the royal family, you don't have to pay taxes. Pretty good deal. And Peter, recognizing this, Jesus is basically saying, I don't own the tax. I don't need to pay to go into the tabernacle. I'm the God of the tabernacle. Why do I have to pay the tax, Jesus is saying. Does Jesus owe the half-shekel tax to get into his own tabernacle? No, that's ridiculous. Of course he doesn't owe it. So Jesus tells Peter, go to the sea, cast a hook. We don't know what he baited it with. Fishermen throughout the centuries have wondered. Take up the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take it and pay your tax. Pay mine, too. Peter goes fishing. He's pretty good at it. First fish he gathers. It's got a shekel in its mouth. I know it's a little bit weird. All you guys are like, you're planning a fishing trip after church. All right, I'm going to get rich. He goes and pays his tax. What's the point here? Jesus' point is, I owe nothing. Peter, you owe I'm going to pay you what you owe. That's Jesus' whole point here. He says, I don't owe, Peter, you do owe. I am the God of the tabernacle. I don't owe the offering you owe. I don't owe anything you owe, but you, Peter, do owe it. But don't worry about it, Peter. I'm going to take care of it. And this is precisely the point of the entire scripture. Everything that God has required, God has provided. Does God require righteousness to enter into his presence? Yes. Are we righteous? No. He provides it. God requires strength to stand in the love of Christ. Do we have that strength? No. God provides it. Everything God has required, God has provided. Everything God has needed, Jesus has given. So in Christ, we stand strong. In Christ, we have victory. All right, one last verse. I wasn't going to go there, but now I'm going to. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. This is one you're familiar with. We're going to end with this. I promise. And if I don't end with it, I'll just rest in grace. So deal with it. 
Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against authorities, cosmic powers, this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Our enemy is not anything that we can see, feel, or touch. Our enemy is Satan who is seeking to destroy us. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you're going to be able to stand in the evil day and having done everything to stand. Therefore, put on the belt of truth and put on the breastplate of righteousness. Put on shoes of your feet the readiness of the gospel of peace. Take up the shield of faith and the sword of salvation. Uh, sort of the uh, helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So when David went and faced Goliath, whose armor did he put on? Well, no one's. And now we're being called to put on armor. Well, we need to think about this a little bit because I actually think the two are a little bit connected. Let me explain it. Romans 13 says this. You don't have to, t- you don't have to turn there unless you're quick. Romans 13, 11, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. He's saying Jesus is almost here. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the, what? Here we go, armor of light. So Paul says, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let's walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness or immorality, sensuality and quarreling and jealousy. Verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ to make no provision for the flesh. A little something different there. Did you hear that? Put on the armor of light, and then put on Jesus Christ himself. He says, I want you to wear the armor of light. I want you to wear on yourself the person who is Jesus Christ. He adds to this over in 1 Thessalonians. Again, I'll just read it very quickly. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet salvation. So what Paul is calling us to do here by putting on the armor of God is he's saying, by faith, I want you to be in Christ. I want you to put Christ on. I want you to wear the power of God himself as your clothing. So this isn't the same thing as Saul's armor. See, Saul's armor would have been David saying, I don't need God's help. I've got everything I need to defeat Goliath. That's Saul's armor. But what we do is we stand behind our our David, Christ, and he is our armor. He goes before us, and he defeats the enemies. He defeats Satan. He defeats sin. He defeats death. And now he says, put on the armor of God. He says, put on Christ himself. By faith, we put on Christ, and we believe that Christ stands in victory over Satan. We believe that Christ stands in victory over all of our sin, over all of our disobedience. Not only that, but we put on Christ, not in merely faith, but also in faithfulness. When we put on Christ in a very real way, we don't merely trust what he has done, but we also say, in wearing Christ, I want my life to be like Christ. So in spite of my brokenness, I yearn for holiness and righteousness. I I yearn that my life and your life would be a life of light and righteousness and goodness and love and forgiveness. 
What Jesus isn't doing is saving us from our sins so that we can live any way we want. He's saying, I want to save you so you can live the way I have called you to live, in righteousness and holiness. All right, three closing thoughts, and then we're done. First thing, are you ready? This is really, really insightful and brilliant. The battle is won. Yeah, you're welcome. Write it down because you don't believe it. The battle is won. Stand strong. It's already over. The battle's won. Some of us still cower in the bushes. We're convinced that we are the one person in all of human history that has managed to sin ourselves out of the love of God. Some of us still cower in fear, wondering if God will ever accept us, wondering if he really had victory for us or did he only have it for the good people. Let me just tell you, the good people won't tell you this. They're not as good as you think. The battle is won. Some of us still cower in fear. Stand strong. He's already beat it. He's already won. He's defeated your sin and your shame and your guilt. It's time to plunder the enemy's camp. Now, another thing we need to mention is some of us live as though we're Philistines. You don't get to play both sides of the fence. He says putting on the armor of light says we're stepping away from the life of darkness. Now, none of us are going to do it perfectly. None of us are going to be live a perfect life. It's just not going to happen between now and the resurrection. But to set up camp in the Philistines' camp is not what he's calling us to do. And some of us have become overly comfortable with living with things we know are not God's ways. I don't even have to list them because as soon as I mention it, it's right in your head. The battle is won. Why would we go to the enemy's camp and say, hey, how are you guys doing it? How do you guys like to live? Paul calls us to wear the, wear the armor, to put Christ on and live as those who live in the daytime, stepping away from uh, the desires of the flesh. When we fail to rest in Christ's grace, but to seek to live a life of, failness, of faithfulness to him. The battle is won. Some of us still live in our old ways, and it's time to step away. It's time to put them down and live as one who is in the light. The battle is won. Some of us fight in our Christian life as though the victory depends on our brilliant efforts. We would never say it out loud, but we know that Team Jesus is lucky to have us. Some of us are fighting this Christian life as though the future of the kingdom of God depends on our efforts, whatever we have decided is the most important thing for Christian people. The battle's won. It does not depend on our effort. Thank God it doesn't depend on our effort. The battle is won. Stand. Knowing that Christ is powerful in us, that we have Christ's presence, and because of that, we will one day stand before God and see and behold all of his glory.